Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Some truly remarkable events are unfolding in Sudan, where protesters have secured the ouster of longtime ruler Omar al-Bashir. After nearly 30 years as an authoritarian president and dictator, he was deposed in a coup on April 11th. But the protesters have not dispersed and are rallying against the cadre of military officials who have assumed control. On the line with me to discuss these events in Sudan, including how he got to this moment and where the political upheaval may be heading, is Peyton Knopf. He is a former U.S. diplomat and U.N. official who has worked on Sudan issues for many years. He's currently an advisor to the U.S. Institute for Peace. We kick off discussing the events that led to the ouster of al-Bashir, but we don't dwell on that too much because I actually did an episode on uh, that very topic as these protests first began in late December. I'll post a link to that episode on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Rather, we spend the bulk of the conversation discussing this unfolding and fluid situation. Peyton Knopf explains who these military rulers of Sudan are and why it's significant that some of them have trained and deployed militias to Yemen and Libya. We also discuss the implications of an international criminal court arrest warrant for al-Bashir and how the unfolding geopolitical dynamic may strongly influence how this political crisis is resolved. Uh, this is a very timely conversation, obviously. Uh, also, I just want to emphasize how profound it is that these peaceful protests led to the ouster of Omar al-Bashir. I have been covering uh, Sudan issues, you know, UN and US policy towards Sudan for well over 15 years. And the fact that peaceful protesters were able to secure the ouster of this genocidal dictator is just sort of mind-boggling to me still uh, over a week after the fact. Before we start, I have a question for you all. One dynamic that I've noticed having done this show for so long is how I, as a journalist, often bring you stories from parts of the world less covered by mainstream outlets or on topics that are globally important but really don't get much coverage, certainly not the coverage they deserve. But then here's the the interesting thing. You, as a listener, have taken some concrete real-world action based on what you've heard. This action could be something as direct as buying the book of an author I interviewed or using your professional connections to follow up on an idea or issue raised on the podcast. I hear stories of this real-world impact from time to time, but I would really love to collect them. So could you please email me and let me know if an episode inspired you to take some real-world action, whatever that may be. These stories of impact are very valuable to me, so thank you in advance. You can send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I'll also post a link to my email in the description field of the podcast if you're listening on your phone. Thank you in advance for sharing your stories of how this podcast has impacted you and the actions that you've decided to take based on something that you heard on the podcast. All right, now here is my conversation with Peyton Knopf, an advisor to the United States Institute of Peace. 
Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I was sort of thinking about how long um, I've known you sort of professionally, and mm. it must have been, I must have first come across you and, and, and your name in 2006 when you were mm. a advisor or working with the U.S. envoy to Sudan. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I mean, can, can um, you imagine this moment right now with Bashir stepping down and being deposed the way he was? Uh, on the one hand, no, uh, because of course it had, I mean, just given the, the length of, uh, I mean, his sort of longevity and staying power and the longevity and staying power of many of those around him. Uh, no, certainly in 2006, uh, I don't think we, it, it, there was no sense that there, you know, the country was going to be on the cusp of change, you know, 10 or a little more years later, uh, at least in this regard, right? I mean, the focus was obviously on the, uh, the implementation of the peace agreement between Sudan and South Sudan. And, that was largely predicated on some, you know, sense that there was going to be, uh, certainly after John Garang, a long time South Sudanese independence leader, uh, had died, predicated on more or less, you know, the NCP and Bashir uh, mm-hmm. remaining. NCP uh, is the National Congress Party, we should say, which is uh, Bashir's ruling base. Right. Yeah, correct. Uh, because there wasn't, as I said, after John Garang passed away, who had a who had a vision for a new Sudan, not just for South Sudan's independence. Uh, there wasn't really a charismatic alternative uh, in the country uh, to Bashir and to his uh, his sort of inner circle. Having said that, I think by and large, and this persists to this day. Uh, and I was a U.S. diplomat in Khartoum, as you said. I don't think we've been particularly good as a government uh, in really understanding uh, the internal workings of the NCP and the different sort of party factions, never mind the broader uh, Sudanese elite. So I think to some extent, even now, right, I mean, even post-Arab Spring, obviously, when you've seen change in a number of the surrounding countries, um, when you've seen a reshifting geopolitical landscape in the broader region, I think we were still as a government and even, you know, those of us watching from the outside, quite surprised, you know, when these protests uh, broke out in, in December, right, and in some ways caught off guard, even though, in retrospect, I mean, looking back even six months, uh, a lot of the kind of warning signs, if you want to call it that, uh, were there. But uh, but look, Mark, I mean, you look at sort of the state of U.S. policy going into this really pivotal moment, and it was largely, uh, it's been a, you know, an effort toward driving towards normalization, again, focused on, mm-hmm. uh, you know, essentially Bashir and his regime remaining in power. So it's been you know, I think not for the first time, U.S. <laughs> policy yeah. has struggled to keep pace with events. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you know, to me as, as sort of a, a casual, uh, not I guess more than a casual observer, I've reported a lot mm. on U.S. policy towards Sudan, yeah. you know, back in 2006 while you were sort of working that policy directly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I 
when when these protests erupted in, in December, I mean, it really, I mean, it caught my attention. I, I did a whole episode uh, about those protests and about the origin of the protests and kind of like a, a long history of Omar al-Bashir and how he came to power. And I'd sort of refer people to, to that episode for some deeper background. Uh, but for the purposes of, of this conversation, um, I'd be interested in sort of kind of talking through like what's happening and how are you interpreting sort of what's happening in Khartoum right now. Uh, but before we get there, could you just do like a, a very mm-hmm. sort of brief uh, introduction for people who did not listen to that previous episode of what these protests are all about and who Omar al-Bashir is, sort of a, a, a shorter version of how we got to this moment right now? Sure, I'd be happy to. And I was remiss in not uh, earlier thanking you for having me on uh, today to discuss this. Um, look, the proximate cause of the protests uh, when they broke out uh, in, in uh, December of last year uh, was the depth and severity of the economic crisis uh, in facing Sudan. Uh, and that's been true uh, and, and gradually worsening and the economic situation gradually deteriorating over the last couple of years, but it had really intensified in the in the proceedings sort of 12 months. Um, and so, you know, what began as, uh, you know, protests at, at bread prices and, and other really, um, and quite literally bread and butter issues, um, quickly morphed into what we, you know, a discussion about the state of governance, uh, in the country and, and, and quite clearly the crisis of legitimacy facing Bashir and, and the National Congress Party and the ruling elite and those who had been, uh, you know, basically since 1989, uh, the fundamental decision makers in uh, in the security apparatus uh, of the country, whether that was the military, whether it was the uh, internal external security services uh, or the, the various irregular uh, militia that have sprung up and really proliferated even since you know, I was at the embassy in Khartoum, 2006, 2007, 2008, um, and multiplied throughout the country, uh, but who are, uh, who operate at the behest and with the support of uh, Bashir and others in the government. And so what you saw was this groundswell of popular frustration that traversed uh, socioeconomic and tribal uh, and ethnic divisions in the country. And and clearly, uh, you know, resulted in what looks like, you know, Bashir having been deposed by the military and uh, now two different iterations in the last you know, week or so uh, of a military uh, led government. So actually, that, that leads nicely into my next set of questions, which is, you know, who are like these cast of characters um, that are sort of titrally the, the head of, of the Sudanese government at the moment? Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. And actually, I mean, your first question about, uh, you know, could I have anticipated or did we anticipate then the, the sort of scope of this change? You know, it, it's interesting because a lot of these figures uh, who are leading uh, this military uh, council uh, are figures who were very much present uh, and influential uh, when I was serving at the embassy there, right? Uh, particularly in the context of 
what was in a very brutal, uh, as all of your listeners will recall, uh, conflict in Darfur, right? So the head of the, uh, the current head of the military council who uh, came, he's the sort of second leader, uh, came in to be, uh, came uh, to lead the council on Friday, um, was the commander of land forces uh, in Darfur during that uh, period of genocide. The number two uh, in the current military council, uh, a general, uh, general who's uh, who's called Hameti, uh, was the commander of one of the large uh, sort of Arab militia uh, then that perpetrated uh, a lot of the atrocities uh, that we saw. There was another faction of Arab militia, the Janjaweed, uh, as, as you'll recall, uh, who were also involved in that. And uh, as time went on, sort of post-genocide, what, what you saw evolving in the Darfur landscape was a competition between, very violent, brutal competition, in fact, between rival um, Arab militia and Hameti uh, was what essentially prevailed in that, comp- uh, in that competition. So on the one hand, Mark, you do obviously see a very dynamic, fluid, and changing situation. On the other hand, the folks who, at least for the moment, uh, seem to be in charge are not new, uh, you know, sort of progressive figures, right? And certainly uh, what we've seen, even though the demonstrators and and the sort of opposition coalition um, has constituted a negotiating body to to engage with this this military-led government, you haven't seen the sort of... um, Chain, uh, sort of transformative change towards democracy, towards mm-hmm. good governance, etc. That that is that would be more consistent with the aspirations of the protesters that and, they've articulated over the last four months. Well, yeah, and what's so interesting to me is that the protesters, um, they're not sort of taking like Bashir light of uh, for, for a plausible Correct. alternative. You know, they rejected um, the first uh, general, and now they seem to be in the process of, um, you know. Of of drawing a really sort of hard line uh, against um, this new general in charge, they they really seem to be generally opposing military rule, which is which is just sort of like an interesting stance for them to take. And it seems the protesters right now feel extremely empowered. I think that's right, and I think it's actually quite remarkable not just uh, what the demonstrators have have been able to accomplish, right, in terms of organization and and the protests themselves and sustaining them and building uh, momentum behind them. But what you're also seeing is, I think, an um, extremely laudable um, kind of political maturity uh, in the demonstrators. And, uh, for example, a, a real caution about rushing to elections, right? I mean, as you just said, uh, I think they've been very clear that a military-led government is not what they were looking for, uh, and uh, and very clear that uh, it's not going to meet uh, the aspirations of the Sudanese people, but also, importantly, not likely to be able to deal with the, the fundamental questions, uh, issues of governance and, uh, and, uh, and the economy that, again, were the inspiration for the protests at the outset. But they're also, um, you know, I think being very uh, strategic in not rushing towards elections uh, and and pushing for things that could actually um, lead to further uh, instability and insecurity. Um, You know, some of the experiences from elsewhere in the region, Libya, Syria, elsewhere, uh, are cautionary tales. Right. And I think uh, the demonstrators and the the leaders of this opposition, uh, the forces for change, this opposition coalition, have really tried to think through um, how do you bridge to a moment that keeps 
the country intact, uh, preserves the territorial integrity of, of Sudan and to some extent the functioning of the state, um, but also balance that obviously with the need for some really significant reforms. Um, and, you know, what we're not seeing uh, is, is yet um, the military government, at least not seeing from the outside, uh, them willing to engage uh, in that, uh, you know, on that basis. Mm. So, can I ask, what role uh, do you see or is the looming ICC uh, arrest warrant over Omar al-Bashir and presumably some of these other cast of characters um, in, in the military uh, is having uh, over this situation? I mean, a- as we're speaking right now, um, the latest report I saw from Khartoum suggested that uh, Bashir had been moved from, you know, house arrest in his you know palace to uh, a rather notorious prison in Khartoum, um, which suggests to me that the um, you know ruling cadre right now see no role for him in any political transition. So what, um, I, I guess, do you think he might be sort of um, extradited somehow to The Hague? Or in general, how do you see the ICC um, sort of affecting the politics of what's happening right now in Sudan? Yeah, I think it's an important question. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, I mean, I, I tend to try to err on the side of humility in terms of being able to predict mm-hmm. <laughs> develop with 100% accuracy political development uh, in Sudan. I think one of the questions, even beyond the ICC, is, and I mean, we've seen not just Bashir, but a number of senior regime figures um, ostensibly removed from power, right? So Salah Ghosh, the longtime intelligence mm-hmm. chief, uh, was theoretically fired and replaced on uh, over the weekend. But I think there's the question remains about, you know, while there may be the perception that some of these folks are included are, are certainly down, are they really out? And what is there? And do they have, um, is it true that they actually don't have any ability to influence the situation uh, in the country? I'm not sure that's clear to us yet, right? And I saw the same report that you just referenced in terms of Bashir being moved to prison. Maybe, maybe not, right? Um, I think we'll have to We'll have to keep a close eye on that. I mean, the 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 forces for change in the country have made very clear that accountability for uh, you know crimes in the country, including but not limited to Bashir, is one of their top um, priorities. Whether that becomes you know done by the ICC or somehow uh, internally with Sudan, if indeed Bashir is you know that's the trajectory that he's on, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think the the question of the ICC was was in some ways more um, urgent while he was still sort of in power because what you saw was this debate about, um, you know, not wanting, if there was a negotiated path out for him, there was a tension between, um, particularly in the international community, in the West in particular, about whether to try to create that pathway, knowing that it may actually lead to him um, not uh, going to the going being tried by the ICC and what that would mean, what signals that would send more broadly in terms of impunity and, and sort of international justice. That question, I think, is a little less acute now, particularly if he's, you know, being sent uh, to, to Kobar prison, as you said. Um, but Again, I'm, I just think we have to be very cautious because the situation, you know, is really quite fluid, and um, and it's not 100 percent clear to me that all these figures, Bashir included, uh, are completely without agency still. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think we we just have to sort of watch that situation. So, uh, another sort of set of questions in in uh, another area I wanted to ask you about is how this unfolding political drama in Khartoum. 
might affect like the kind of low level ongoing conflicts elsewhere in Sudan, like in the Kordofan region and, and the Blue Nile region. And th this is an area I should say that is on the Sudanese border with South Sudan that has often been the site of, of like a insurgency and brutal counterinsurgency by the government of Sudan. Um, and is, you know, also, you know, an area of, of an immense humanitarian uh, suffering. Um, do, like, how do you expect, or what do you think this these events in Khartoum um, might imply for what's going on in in some of those lower level conflicts that that are still, you know, burning? I think there's really two aspects to watch. One is what uh, you know the military council, if it remains in power, which is obviously a big question, how it decides to deal uh, with what is referred to by the, you know, Sudan watchers as the peripheral areas, right? So the Southern Kordofan Blue Nile, as you said, but also Darfur and, and kind of the, the areas furthest away from Khartoum. Um, and, you know, one of the, um, the forces for change in the country have made very clear that one of their priorities is ending the internal conflicts uh, in Sudan. Uh, I think, you know, given what we were talking about earlier, that a lot of the folks who are still in this military council have been involved in these conflicts uh, in the past, I think it's hard to see the military government uh, making a, a good faith effort uh, to address the the local grievances that have have led to these conflicts um, sort of dragging on for uh, for some decades now um, without any sincere political engagement from the center uh, in terms of, of, of resolving them. So that's one thing to watch. I think the second thing uh, is that, you know, you've seen um, uh two different sort of groupings of opposition now, right? I mean, the demonstrators and the folks that that really uh, have been on the vanguard of the changes that we've seen in the last couple of weeks are in some ways different than the kind of old guard opposition who, particularly in Southern Kordofan and Blue Nile, uh, have been the main interlocutors uh, in a ongoing set of negotiations um, under the auspices of the African Union between Khartoum uh, and uh, Southern Kordofan uh, and Blue Nile. And there are divides within that sort of old guard opposition that have complicated matters, particularly in Southern Kordofan, uh, in the last couple of years. And, and that's also, I hate to keep sort of using the word fluid, but what has happened in Khartoum really since December has shaken up uh, that kind of geometry. Um, and so it's still, it, the dust really has not settled in terms of how the different opposition figures as individuals and the different opposition movements in the two areas, um, both politically and the military movement on the ground, um, kind of, uh, you know, sort of react to this um, going forward. I mean, I think, you know, many of the, the aspirations uh, that we've seen in uh, animating the demonstrations in the last couple of months, which I should say have not just been in Khartoum. They've been in, in areas throughout the country, which is um, speaks to, I think, why this has been and is proving to be the most significant threat to Bashir and the NCP's rule since they took power in 1989. Many of those same grievances, not all of them, uh, are the same things that the people of Southern Kordofan and Blue Nile have been, uh, uh, you know, fighting for for some years now. So, it's um, we're fighting against. Um, so, you know, I think that's, uh, again, I mean, the, the politics is very unsettled, right? But it's hard for me to see uh, a military government that's currently in power dealing in any meaningful way with mm -hmm. resolving 
uh, those conflict, those internal conflicts. So, so that military government currently in power seems to have the support of Saudi Arabia and UAE, not least for the fact that um, some Sudanese uh, militias and forces have fought um, on the ground in Yemen on behalf of of Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Um, on the other side of things, it seems that the the so-called Troika, um, which is the United States, the United Kingdom, and Norway, right? Norway is the other one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 Norway. Okay, okay. Um, uh, are, you know, have issued statements supporting the aspirations of the protesters. Um, so it seems that you're having like a really interesting international sort of relations dynamic unfolding right now. Um what should we be looking out for there? What can you, you sort of tell us about sort of the various like foreign policies towards Sudan uh, as they're unfolding? Sure. I mean, I, I think one of the most worrisome uh, sort of issues from my perspective, at least, uh, is the kind of the vacuum in the geopolitics, right? And how disruptive this has been uh, to, uh, and can potentially even be more disruptive uh, to, to what is already a very, very uh, volatile region. I mean, Sudan, Mark, as you know, sits at a strategic crossroads between uh, North Africa, uh, the Sahel, uh, and the Middle East. Um, and, you know, there's a country with twice the population of Syria. So, um, you know, in this very f- uh, fluid uh, inflection point, uh, it's, you know, the the sort of regional politics and rivalries uh, are, I think, are very concerning. And, uh, and it's uh, potentially very damaging, not just the transition, but to the integrity and functioning of the state. Uh, if a lot of the divisions that we've seen in Libya, for example, among some of the Gulf states um, in Yemen and elsewhere uh, begin to play out uh, in the Sudan uh, context. I mean, we talked about earlier this this gentleman, Hamedi, who is the number two in the military council. He is, and it's important, I think, for listeners to understand this, he is the commander of the militia that has deployed into Yemen uh, on behalf of Sudan uh, as part of the Saudi-led uh, coalition. So when when you just said earlier that it, it appears as if the military council is, it has the support of the, uh, of the of the UAE and Saudi Arabia, that's exactly right. The, the Saudis and the Emirates have issued statements of support. Um, they've, they've offered uh, financial assistance, uh, if not other forms of assistance, potentially. And in some ways, that shouldn't be surprising, uh, given that the fact that uh, just, uh, I think it was yesterday morning, uh, Hameti announced that the military council had taken the decision to leave the Sudanese troops uh, in Yemen, mm-hmm. among other factors, right? Now, I think one of the things that we have to watch is whether, uh, for example, uh, Qatar or Turkey, both of whom have been deeply engaged in Sudan for a number of years, uh, Qatar was involved uh, in the mediation process for Darfur for several years. Um, Turkey, uh, as recently as last year, uh, signed a, 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 a long-term lease uh, on, for a small island off the coast uh, of Sudan in the Red Sea, uh, which Qatar swiftly announced it would spend several billion dollars uh, investing in. So these countries have deep engagements, and certainly given um, the crisis within the GCC, um, ha- that's the divisions- Gulf Cooperation Council. You're referring to the the sort of the the, the divisions between Qatar and UAE um, in Saudi Arabia, yeah. 
Correct. Yeah. And so you see these camps, the Saudis, the Emiratis on one side, not to oversimplify the Qataris mm-hmm. and the Turks on the other, uh, all of whom have, have very legitimate security interests in Sudan, unquestionably. Uh, but it's the rivalry uh, coming into this, you know, this really volatile moment inside South Sudan that I think we we have to uh, be quite concerned about. And just to add uh, on the West uh, and, and sort of its role, um, you have seen some clear statements, if not belatedly, uh, well, from the United States and its partners uh, welcoming uh, the aspirations uh, of the demonstrators, etc. Um, I think what we're still waiting to see, Mark, is that um, the day before yesterday, uh, the African Union issued uh, what was frankly the most forceful international statement yet on the, with respect to the military council, uh, essentially saying that the African Union would suspend Sudan's membership uh, in, in the AU uh, if the, um, the military council does not hand over to a civilian-led government mm. in the next 15 days. We've seen the European Union, to its great credit, endorse uh, that timeline uh, what we still haven't seen is the U.S. Uh, voice its explicit support for that. And so in some ways, the African Union is leaning, uh, not in some ways, in all ways, the African Union is leaning uh, really far forward and emphasizing one of the core demands of the demonstrators, namely uh, a civilian-led transition on a strict mm-hmm. timeline. Um, and, you know, it's a little unclear where the West, uh, where the West is on that. Equally unclear is what messages Washington in particular, but but also some of our European partners and allies are conveying to um, to the states in the Middle East uh, with respect to the very concerns that I just mm. uh, just spoke about. So, so it would be your um, it, it would be your perspective that you know a, a that a, a policy, an international policy, you know, the policy of the United States of, of Europe to um, ensure the quick transition to civilian role is like the ultimate uh, is the optimal policy option and, and, and policy preference right now and what um, the US and others should be pressing for. No question. I mean, I think, look, we all have an interest. I mean, we meaning the West, the, the Sudan's neighbors, the states in the broader Middle East have an interest in uh, stability and the functioning of Sudan. I think the only way of reaching that sort of stable uh, outcome at this point is in fact for a civilian-led transition. The notion that everybody uh, sort of can line up behind uh, this very, um, uh, in some ways, uh, you know, kind of fluid, seemingly fluid uh, mix of military leaders who kind of come in and shuffle the deck chairs, and that's a recipe for stability, I think is very misplaced. Mm-hmm. And so we absolutely do have to line up in support of a civilian-led transition uh, as swiftly as possible. Uh, and, you know, uh, appreciating again, as I said earlier, that I think um, one of the most remarkable things about these demonstrations is a real political maturity and a desire to think through then how you start um, putting the country on a new path uh, that is not just stable, but is democratic uh, and and meeting the aspirations of, of the people uh, of Sudan. I mean, what you don't see, Mark, to, to the credit of the demonstrators, are these calls for sort of the dismantling of the state's institutions or a wholesale cleaning, you know, or purge. Um, and I think that's very, very encouraging and, and merits the support of the international community consistently and, and vocally. So, so finally, what um, events or 
ideas or, or, or things, uh, for, for lack of a better word, will you be looking out for in the next few days, weeks, and months that might suggest to you one way or another how this uh, event, this political event, will, will play out? Well, I think one thing to watch and keep a close eye on, as we were talking about earlier, was how uh, a number of the states from the Middle East uh, engage on this question. And look, I mean, as, as events unfold in, in Sudan, right, we're seeing a very dynamic situation in Libya, uh, a very fluid situation in Algeria. Um, you have a you have a in some ways quite fragile, uh, although potentially promising uh, political transition in Ethiopia, uh, just uh, to the south uh, east of Sudan, a country of 100 million over 100 million people uh, that has never undergone uh, a, a, a democratic uh, or frankly nonviolent transition in its history. And now is it just uh, in the first year of, uh, of a new uh, prime minister? Um, so, you know, we, it, it, there's a lot at stake in this region right now. And so I think one thing to keep a close eye on is how all these different sort of pieces uh, interact with one another. I think the second thing I would look at and not, you know, unrelated is this issue of um, the internal conflicts in Sudan and whether they uh, potentially flare up. Um, you know, I, 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 Southern Court of Fond Blue Nile, very important to watch, as you rightly uh, brought up. But I think Darfur is also at a really critical moment. You know, there's been a long, as you followed for a long time, there's been one of the largest UN peacekeeping missions in the world in Darfur. And um, a process was begun long before these protests, uh, to reduce uh, and, and ultimately end uh, that UN mission in Darfur. What you're seeing, though, Mark, is that, you know, not just the presence of, of senior figures in the military council who have been engaged in the conflict Darfur in, a, in, in Darfur in a command uh, role uh, for some years, but you're also seeing a link between Darfur and what's happening in Libya in that um, a number of the um, Darfuri militias that opposed uh, Bashir's government and the government in Khartoum uh, have been for some time now fighting in Libya on behalf of General Heftar, yeah. uh, who, has, as your readers may uh, yeah. readers, your listeners, excuse me, uh, will know, uh, is uh, in the process of, you know, sort of uh, trying to assert, having asserted his dominance in the southern part of Libya, he's, he's pushing towards Tripoli. And um, yeah, as and, we speak, you know, there's like a battle in Tripoli ongoing. And exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now, what you've got uh, then is the uh, the Darfuri militia supporting the military council have, of course, deployed to Dar uh, to Khartoum to support that, right? And on to Yemen, as we were talking about earlier. So, uh, one of the other questions is: Do you see some of the um, the force, the Darfuri forces fighting with Hiftar, now seeing an opportunity uh, to come back to Darfur and assert some of their dominance? So, hmm. you know, I, I, it's those kinds of issues that I would that are sort of. Tr um, uh, they're kind of transnational in some ways yeah. that I think we have to keep a really, really close eye on. I mean, this um, could really, I, just ha hearing you describe this, I mean, this could really go either way. I mean, this could turn into a no Libya question. or it could turn into, you know, a Tunisia. Absolutely. I mean, look, we're seeing the most significant changes in North and Northeast Africa uh, in a generation, all more or less unfolding in parallel. 
And that is that would be a challenge under any circumstances, <laughs> right? But given everything else that's going on in the world, it's a particularly acute challenge, I think, for Western policymakers and others. I mean, policymakers in the Middle Eastern states we're talking about to, who are wrestling with, you know, still with Syria, still with Yemen, uh, never mind things, you know, further afield. And so, uh, you know, the risks are huge. The implications are great for, you know, far beyond uh, just Sudan or just Libya, right? I mean, this is um, these are big questions of international, truly international peace uh, and security, and how this plays out in these various countries over the next, you know, frankly, even six months. It could be as soon as that. Uh, the people of the region, most importantly, uh, but you know, folks around the world are going to have to live with those consequences for years to come. Uh, well, Peyton Knopf, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. It was, a, it was a great conversation. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Peyton. That was extremely helpful. Helpful to me as I sort of figure out how to understand issues as they unfold in the coming weeks and months. Uh, and, and again, thank you all for in advance for emailing me your stories about how this podcast has inspired you to take some you know, real world action one way or another. As I said, these are very valuable to me for, for several reasons. Number one, you know, I do what I do because I, you know, want to make an impact on the world. And, uh, these stories, uh, are really good ways, uh, for me to measure the kind of impact that this show is having. So thank you in advance for emailing me. I will see you next time. Bye.